Welcome to All Things VC, the podcast where we uncover the secrets of why venture capital firms invested in the companies they did. I'm your host, Justin Pryor. The idea of investors who were former entrepreneurs and engineers backing entrepreneurs and engineers is mainstream in venture capital today. Back in 1972, however, at the founding of venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, startups were presented with different types of institutional partners. Partners that were typically from a finance or sales background and used banking tactics to invest in risky startups. We know now that this mindset of investing is clearly flawed, and the best venture capitalists are the ones who understand the entrepreneur's mentality, product, market, and business plan, having been in the shoes of the entrepreneurs before and knowing what it means to build a product. Tom Perkins, the founder of a startup pursuing a new laser technology, and Eugene Kleiner, a member of the Traders 8, the eight employees at Shockley Semiconductor, who went on to form Fairchild Semiconductor, a prominent company in Silicon Valley history, were the firm's founding partners, Tom Perkins and Eugene Kleiner, with the uninspired name of Kleiner Perkins. (laughs) As we've mentioned in past essays, VC firms have to sell their service, so every new firm needs to stand out. Kleiner Perkins being a firm of entrepreneurial engineers for entrepreneurial engineers, was certainly a way to stick out in a field that had yet to find this notion as mainstream. As a result, Kleiner Perkins cemented itself as one of the top VC firms throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Much of their early success is attributed to this counterpositioning allowing them to partner with exceptional entrepreneurs pursuing a difficult technical challenge that the Kleiner team could analyze better than many other investors. In the 80s and 90s, the firm reached pinnacle status as one of its partners, John Doerr, became unquestionably known as the top VC in the Valley, and many young entrepreneurs sought his counsel. However, this run did not last, as the firm has seen less than exceptional results since pursuing a green tech wave in the mid-2000s from which it is now recovering. The firm currently has a group of 12 partners, all having joined the firm no earlier than 2017, seeking to bring Kleiner Perkins back to its heyday by investing in breakthrough internet technologies, much of what made the Kleiner Perkins of old so spectacular. Today we will investigate why Kleiner Perkins invested in Genentech, Amazon, and Google, their general investment theses, what they look for in founders, what traits they feel make the best VCs, and general advice they have for founders. At the end, we'll look at some huge misses they had in the past in companies like Tesla, VMware, and Robinhood. So let's start. Why did Kleiner Perkins invest in Genentech? So I recognize that Many may not know Genentech, and I recognize that on paper, Amazon and Google seem far more interesting. However, the Genentech story has many lessons and principles that are foundational to Kleiner Perkins today and really set them up to be a premier venture capital firm shortly after this investment. 
So as I mentioned earlier, Kleiner Perkins was a firm built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And so Kleiner Perkins hired employees, assuming they would eventually start a company and Kleiner Perkins would be their first backer. It was essentially an entrepreneur in residence program, but one where they would still work as venture capitalists when they weren't starting their own company. So everyone they hired were engineers or had a background in starting a company or working for a startup, as we said, because their thesis was, you know, built by entrepreneurs, built by engineers for entrepreneurs and engineers. And so Kleiner pretty quickly hit big on this thesis in 1974 when one of their partners, Jimmy Treybig, started Tandem within the walls of Kleiner Perkins and delivered the partnership a 100x exit on his investment and delivered the partnership a 100x exit on his company. Shortly after, in 1976, another employee at Kleiner, though this time just an associate, would have a similar path. But interestingly, this path had a different start as this associate, Bob Swanson, had been fired from Kleiner Perkins before co-founding his company, Genentech. I don't know exactly why he was fired, but as we'll see, he was clearly very bright and Kleiner Perkins should be very happy they apparently had an amicable exit with him because, again, he started Genentech, which, as we'll see, was huge for them. So Swanson had an idea for a breakout biotechnology product of human insulin developed from recombinant DNA. This was certainly a breakthrough because insulin at the time was extracted and refined from the pancreas of cows and pigs. And so I'm no scientist, but I would certainly prefer the first one. <laughs> so even though Swanson was fired, lucky for Kleiner Perkins, he couldn't find another job. So he just hung around the Kleiner Perkins office, not on payroll, and just cold called many scientists at research institutions regarding whether they'd pursue this idea of, with him of, you know, this DNA, this recombinant DNA technology. He received many no's, naturally, but all he needed was one yes. And that yes came from a UCSF researcher, Herbert Boyer. Boyer understood DNA technology well, but Swanson enlightened him on the potential commercial applicability of such a project, leading Boyer to join him in this pursuit. And so when reading this founding story, I was reminded of a quote by former Kleiner Perkins partner, Randy Commissar, where he discusses the importance for founders to engage an associate at a VC firm who cold calls them, even if that associate is not a decision maker. He says, quote, you have to make them your ally. I think without offending them, you need to let them understand that you quickly need to get a sense of the support he's going to get or she's going to get to get in her organization. You need to turn this into, how am I going to help you, associate, get the support for this project? I like you. You understand my business. We have good rapport, but we quickly need to get this raised to a level where I understand the commitment of your organization. I'm going to do you the favor. I'm going to go in and sell your support of my idea. Let's figure out how to do that. And so while Swanson technically wasn't an employee of Kleiner Perkins anymore, he still worked at their office and he had relationships at the partners. 
He was confident that if he could develop this idea thoroughly with the renowned scientist, his former partners would back his company. So therefore, as the quote suggests, it's imperative that you, as a founder, listen to the associates when they cold call you because they could be the first stop on your way to a key decision maker at a VC firm. And so Swanson and Boyer spent the next few weeks developing a thorough business plan to bring to the Kleiner Perkins partnership. They had a thesis on developing this technology, which wouldn't be easy, but would be possible. Also, if they could achieve it, the results would be revolutionary, creating incredible value for Genentech and Kleiner Perkins if they would be investors. And luckily for Genentech, Kleiner Perkins was built on the premise stated by one of its founders, Tom Perkins, that, quote, market risk is inversely proportional to technical risk. Therefore, if you can solve the technical risk, the competition will be minimal. So Kleiner loved to back big, audacious, technically difficult projects because they knew the outcomes could be outstanding. If you were able to mitigate the technical risks, the market risks would be mitigated as well. Therefore, if they could assign a, again, these are engineers, so they can understand what the entrepreneurs are saying and they can, you know, they can do the math themselves. They're able to assign some type of probability based on what they know and based on what the entrepreneurs told them. They have contacts that they can reach out to, to discuss the reasonability, the chances of this firm succeeding. So based on that, you know, if they could assign a 5% chance of this company's technology succeeding, which would accrue, let's say, $100 million in value for Kleiner Perkins, then any investment less than $5 million is a good risk-adjusted investment. So Kleiner Perkins invested in Genentech because they felt this was a big, audacious technical project that, if solved, would generate incredible financial returns. Tom Perkins stated that this technology could create a, quote, microbial Frankenstein compared it to being able to play God. <laughs> because after all, Genentech was building technology that would manipulate genetic material, creating many new opportunities in drug development and production that no other companies were pursuing. And so as a result, Kleiner Perkins felt conviction backing a very challenging technical project because first, Boyer was an exceptional scientist who with Swanson brought together a great plan to attract other exceptional scientists to help build what seemed to be an achievable task. And second, the market potential outweighed the technical risk as Kleiner decided to invest $100,000 into Genentech for 25% of the company. So this meant that Kleiner Perkins invested slightly over 1% of their $8.4 million fund, the total fund that they were investing out of, into a company that the partners felt had an incredible 100x return on investment potential if the Genentech team could build the product they pitched. So therefore, by only putting about 1% of the fund into the company, they made that risk-adjusted investment based on the technical risk compared to the potential financial outcomes. And it turns out that the 1% chance of success was a little too conservative 
because Genentech was very successful shortly after Kleiner's initial investment in 1976. As Genentech reached new technical milestones, they raised more money from other investors with Kleiner continuing to participate. And Kleiner ultimately invested somewhere around $500,000 total into Genentech to maintain their initial 25% stake in the company, which shortly after Genentech's IPO in 1980 was worth around $100 million, yielding Kleiner Perkins a 200x on this investment and a 276 IRR, making this a fantastic risk-adjusted investment on an immense technical problem with immense market potential. So the model of creating a venue of entrepreneurial-minded, engineer background employees to pursue breakthrough technologies, whether through investing or building their own company, set Kleiner Perkins up for immediate success, thanks to Genentech, among others, such as Tandem, as their first fund returned around 42x its invested capital. So incredible start much like we talked about with Benchmark uh, in last episode. But perhaps the greatest return on Kleiner Perkins investments based on this entrepreneur-in-residence model was attracting John Doerr, the legendary VC regarded almost without a doubt as the greatest venture capitalist of all time and essentially a homing beacon for fantastic entrepreneurs based on his high intelligence incredible drive to succeed, and belief in big ideas. As we'll see, he is a big reason for Kleiner's success in pursuing and investing in the next two companies we're about to discuss now. And so now we'll investigate why Kleiner Perkins invested in Amazon. While Amazon has a very interesting founding story, we'll jump ahead to what the company looked like two weeks after they launched. So after two weeks, Amazon generated $25,000 in revenue, only selling books online at this point, with no marketing spend. So these, this $25,000 of revenue was purely driven by word of mouth, which is just the definition of immediate product market fit right there. And this was in July 1995. And so by the end of that year, about six months, they have $500,000 in revenue, and in 1996, their first full year of existence, they did $15.7 million in revenue. So yeah, like I said, immediate product market fit. Again, just books. I mean, Americans don't even read. So this is why it's even crazier of how strong this product market fit was and how strong this desire to order things on the internet and just marvel at it just arriving at your door with a few clicks. So around mid-1996, Bezos and the Amazon team went out to raise money to help fund this clearly strong, accelerated growth. After all, Amazon was not profitable at this point, and running a supply chain for thousands of books a day is a hefty challenge, both logistically and financially. So like we talked about with WhatsApp in the Sequoia episode, this deal was hot. Kleiner didn't really have a unique insight into why Amazon would work because, well, they did $15.7 million in revenue in their second year of existence. And 
$15.7 million of revenue when there were only 45 million users on the internet in the world. So Amazon in its first full year of existence was making about 35 cents per user on the internet, which is kind of a crazy stat, again, for a company less than 18 months old. So as I mentioned before, John Doerr had joined Kleiner Perkins by now. He joined in about 1980. And John Doerr in 1996 is just a rock star, which sounds funny if you look him up because he does not look like a rock star. But every company in Silicon Valley wants John on their board because of just his high intelligence, as we said before, his just incredible drive to succeed and his sharing with the entrepreneurs of just believing in big ideas. On top of that, if you got John on your board, you had a much higher chance of succeeding than the average VC-funded company. John was very similar to the entrepreneur because he was just as much a dreamer as the entrepreneur and loved building companies as much as he or she did. So there was truly an alignment between the founder and investor that didn't feel transactional, but more like a true partnership, like how venture capital should be. Luckily for Jeff Bezos, he didn't really need to pitch John because John was reportedly calling Tom Alberg, a early investor and board member in Amazon. Actually, he was reportedly calling Tom Alberg's wife, who was home at the time when he was calling, apparently every 15 minutes asking if Tom was home yet and how he just needed to talk to him. And so what's so funny about this is, again, John Doerr is the biggest name in Silicon Valley. And he's calling this guy who really doesn't have, I mean, Tom Alberg really doesn't have a name to himself at all at this point. So it's, it's kind of like weird to make a basketball re- reference to this, but it's kind of like if Phil Jackson called a low level division one basketball coach's wife every 15 minutes about one of his players. <laughs> and so John Doerr, even though he was such a big name, he still had that type of hustle and that persistence. And so why was John so confident that he needed to invest in Amazon? And how did he jump on this deal so fast? Well, Doerr attributes this to having a prepared mind, which is a core tenet of being a successful venture capitalist in his eyes. He once said, quote, you must bring a prepared mind to these decisions. And so I think it's important to read and learn and bring curiosity and energy. Work to stay abreast of what's important and why. You know, it's not enough to know that Bitcoin is a new means of conveying value. You ought to know how Bitcoin works and what the physics behind it is in the technology because that gives you a better opportunity to understand what the innovators and entrepreneurs are saying. So John was obsessed with the internet. He thought the internet was going to be way bigger than anyone thought, which still exceeded his own expectations. This is why John led the investment in Netscape, the world's first public internet browser, because he knew that this browser would unlock the capabilities of the internet for millions of people in just a point and click method that was not mainstream at the time. And so having seen the success of Netscape, he was confident in e-commerce, 
everything store like Amazon would be huge. It was a giant industry defining investment that fit the type of companies John loved to invest in. So as a result, John Doerr was very persistent in getting in touch with Amazon because he had so much conviction to invest and wasted no time. But John wasn't just interested in Amazon, the company. He also had a great admiration for Jeff Bezos. Dor once said, quote, When you meet Jeff Bezos, you just know that you want to be in trouble with him. Jeff was a computer scientist from Princeton, exceedingly bright, and I remember walking into his offices in a very seedy part of Seattle. In fact, the Free Needle Clinic was right across the street from his office, and Jeff came bounding down from the loft in this place where they were distributing the books and a laugh that only could barely be described as a laugh. It was more like a honk. <laughs> At that moment, from the intensity in his eyes and the way he talked, I knew there was a kind of personal bond that meant I wouldn't mind being in trouble with Jeff. One thing I'm pretty sure about is any of the entrepreneurs that I get to work with who are going to do something world-changing we are going to get in trouble, end quote. I love that framework of investing in someone you wouldn't mind getting in trouble with because that was absolutely the case with Amazon. Amazon was constantly threatened by Barnes & Noble, actually, as the early stage, constantly getting threatened and I think sued, but settled quietly. And Jeff wouldn't back down, but a lesser founder surely may have, as Barnes & Noble was the king of the book industry. And so, like I said, Amazon had to fight off lawsuits, um, several short sellers, a lot of investor criticism, but Jeff you know, fought on. And John Doerr could foresee this future with Bezos. He saw that he was a fighter, and he thought they'd have a lot of fun disrupting an entire industry. Interestingly enough, this investment almost fell into the Kleiner Perkins anti-portfolio, actually. As much as John loved Amazon and Bezos, he could not accept a board seat at the company. He was already oversubscribed, like always, on board seats, since everyone wanted John Doerr on their board. So he said he couldn't make time for Amazon, and he instead wanted to put a junior VC on the board. Crazy to think about now, but... This was the reality back in 1996 for Amazon. So, like I just described, John Doerr being on so many boards, attracting so many great entrepreneurs, is a blessing and a curse for Kleiner Perkins that we're going to see frequently throughout their history. You know, they attracted the best entrepreneurs because of John Doerr, but they also missed some of the best entrepreneurs because of John Doerr. Because in the eyes of many founders, Kleiner Perkins was John Doerr. And if John couldn't be on your board, then there really was no reason to work with Kleiner Perkins. On top of this, Bezos had an offer from a competing venture capital firm named General Atlantic for twice the valuation that Kleiner was offering. Which is crazy. Twice is crazy. But again, Bezos wanted John Doerr on his board. And Bezos was ready to go with General Atlantic, but luckily, at the last second, Doerr wisely committed to a board seat on Amazon, made the time commitment work, and 
led the investment of $8 million for 13% of the company. 13% of Amazon. Jeez. It's crazy that Bezos diluted twice as many shares as he had for that $8 million investment just to have John Doerr on his board. I mean, like I said, $8 million for 13% of the company. He could have got $8 million for 6.5% of the company from General Atlantic. I mean, that's a lot, lot of value that Jeff Bezos spent, you know, thinking of Amazon value today just to have John Doerr on his board. I mean, I can't believe a venture capitalist was worth that much at one point in time. And certainly no one in the VC industry today is worth such a difference in valuation. And I'm assuming there was never anyone quite to the level of John Doerr in terms of how valuable he is to have on your board. I mean, that's just crazy. And so it's unclear when Kleiner Perkins sold all of their shares in Amazon. Door remained on the Amazon board until 2010. So they may have held some of their stake until then. Probably not, though. That's a long time. Um, I read one article that said as of October 1998, they had made over $325 million on that investment but hadn't finished distributing all their shares yet. So since this is the only factual number I have, we'll calculate Kleiner Perkins' return on investment on Amazon. As of 1998, remember, they invested originally in 1996, which means they returned $325 million at least on an $8 million investment just two years later crazy, which yielded them a quick and spectacular 41x on their investment and an even more impressive 537% IRR. And quick side note, after you know, researching Yahoo with Sequoia and eBay with Benchmark and now Amazon with Kleiner Perkins, I mean, these late 90s dot-com era investments were just absurd. I can't imagine VCs ever seen IRRs like they saw during this time ever again. But then again, who knows? We'll see what happens with AI. I don't know, but I can't believe these numbers. So that was Amazon. So now we're going to go into why did Kleiner Perkins invest in Google? Good back to back for Kleiner Perkins. So to kick off this section, I'm going to give you all an idea of what Google was like when Kleiner Perkins invested. And so I'm going to do this by going back to an excerpt in the Benchmark Capital episode that we did last week and just touch on why Benchmark passed on Google to give you an idea of what it was like. So here are three reasons why Benchmark passed. So it was 1999 and search engines were still in an ultra competitive environment with many questions regarding whether their business models actually made sense. Many search companies were starting and failing consistently, and it was beginning to look pretty murky. There were still many questions whether anybody could make a sustainable business out of search, and if anyone could compete with Yahoo. And then, so number two, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the co-founders, were two Stanford PhD students adamant about being CEO, despite never running a company before, 
which in late 1999 was extremely novel and gave many investors pause, including Benchmark. And so the third point, despite these two concerns, the price was still remarkably high. Bill Gurley, a former partner at Benchmark, also mentions how the founders were so confident in their product and their abilities that it actually gave the opposite impression to the Benchmark team that these guys were maybe overselling themselves and may not be as exceptional as they seem. So that was Google, the 18th search engine built by two Stanford PhD students adamant about being CEO and demanding a very high valuation for their company that had yet to earn a dime. (laughs) So tough sell. But John Doerr loved Google. So what did he see that Benchmark didn't? Well, as I mentioned in the Benchmark episode, Doerr looked past all of those initial concerns, you know, on paper, and investigated the underlying technology, which blew him away. Like many Kleiner Perkins partners, as we touched on, Doerr was an engineer by training, so he could understand these entrepreneurs and engage with them better than most other venture capitalists. So there were two big reasons why John Doerr and Connor Perkins decided to invest in Google. The first, as I mentioned, was the underlying technology of the search engine. And so John Doerr once said when talking about the decision to invest in Google, he said that, quote, the first of which was their search engine was much better. This notion of page rank, which was we're going to return results not based on keywords, but on how many pages point to the page or the answer in question, produced a demonstrably better experience. The second observation was because of that, their numbers were off the chart. And so the growth rate was like anything we'd seen for any other service. And frankly, coming from the technology industries, from Intel, where John Doerr used to work, and networking companies, it didn't take a great leap of imagination to see that search well done could transform everything, end quote. So this notion of PageRank, which was derived from the founder's experience in academia, in which the prestige of an academic paper can be attributed to how many other research papers cite it. Therefore, the pages with the most websites linking to it must be the best pages to show the user. So this was a novel insight at the time and was a key factor in delivering a better search experience for their users. But again, like I said, Google was the 18th search engine. So could it really be that much better than the incumbents to capture enough market share to be a public company? Again, if you're starting from the 18th poll, you have a ways to go to get to the top. So you have to be far and away better than all the companies ahead of you, or you're not going to be able to make it. And so former Kleiner Perkins partner and founder of Kosla Ventures, Vino Kosla, who we will absolutely talk about more in a future episode on Coastal Ventures, whenever that happens, spectacular venture capital firm. Um, He had this to say when describing the potential Google had to succeed in such a crowded market. Coastal once said, quote, 
If you thought existing search technology was 90% as good as the best possible version, then pushing performance up to 95% was not going to win you customers. But if you thought there was more headroom, that existing search technology represented only 20% of the potential, then Google might be three or four times as good as its rivals, in which case its margin of engineering excellence would attract a flood of users, end quote. So PageRank convinced Door and Kosla that Google could actually be multiple times better than the current search leaders. It was built on exceptional technology backed by two genius computer science doctoral candidates. And based on its growth rate, it was showing early signs of success. There were no indications that this would change and all signs pointed to Google continuing to grow. So that was the first reason. The technology was spectacular. The second reason John had so much conviction in the Google investment was that, as we mentioned before, he believed in the potential of the internet far more than the average person. I mean, probably far more than the top 1% of believers. I mean, he really saw the potential in it. And he loved entrepreneurs who were ambitious and had lofty aspirations, just as Dor thought himself. So what's interesting is that the Google founders had even bigger expectations for the internet than Dor and dreamed even bigger than Dor, who was certainly one of the biggest believers in Silicon Valley on just the future and the acceleration of technology. And if you study Kleiner Perkins, you'll see that these two traits of just being more ambitious and a bigger dreamer than John Dor himself is a great reason to back a company, great reason to back founders, just like we saw with Jeff Bezos, just like we're seeing now with Larry Page and Sergey Brin. So John tells the story of the first time Google came to pitch to him to invest. So right off the bat, he was already enamored by Google's just big and bold mission statement at the time, which was, quote, we deliver the world's information in one click. That's just perfect. I love that mission statement. I totally see how John Doerr could be a sucker for that. <laughs> and so, But what really sent John over the moon about this investment was when he engaged the founders regarding the market potential of Google. You know, having seen Yahoo's success and Google's potential after studying the technology, John thought they could attain a $1 billion market cap, which was really big in 1999. However, when he asked the founders about how valuable they thought their company could be, they blew Doerr's estimate out of the water. And so Doerr recalls the conversation by saying, quote, I'll never forget my first conversation with Larry Page when I asked him how big Google would be, and he told me $10 billion. Remember now, this was around 1999. This is at a time when you still dialed up to get into the internet. I about fell out of my chair. I said, Larry, surely you mean market cap at 10 billion. He said, no, John, I mean revenues. Search today is just the very beginning. In fact, it's a very crummy experience. I want the search system to be able to answer any question that's asked of it 
and indeed to anticipate what our users want to know. End quote. So $10 billion in revenues at the time would suggest a $100 billion market cap, which was 100 times higher than John Doerr's already ambitious expectations of a $1 billion market cap. And so the technology, the big and bold mission statement, and now just having 100 times the conviction and ambition than John Doerr was just the icing on the cake for him to make this investment. But Kleiner Perkins is a partnership and John Doerr isn't the only decision maker. There are a lot of partners that need to be consulted with this investment decision. And funny enough, this was far from a unanimous decision at Kleiner Perkins. In fact, John Doerr had to advocate fairly strongly for the Google deal. Luckily for Kleiner Perkins, a core tenant today and one I'd assume at the time, otherwise this Google investment wouldn't have been made, is to support non-consensus investment decisions since the best investment decisions are non-consensus and right. So current Kleiner Perkins partner, Ilya Fushman, describes this principle as follows. He says, quote, we're really partner conviction driven in the sense that any partner can come in and propose a deal. Our job as partners is again to test or reinforce that conviction, but we don't have a formal vote. In practice, the way it really settles out is you look across the room and if everybody looks really skeptical, then they probably have a reason to be skeptical. But you could still do that deal. Now, you can only do that so many times because eventually, once you do a bunch of deals that nobody likes and they turn out to be bad, it's kind of shame on you. But a lot of times you have the conviction and folks ask good questions and you still believe in it. So you do the deal. So we try to basically give people as much agency as possible to make these decisions because the best deals out there aren't obvious. They do typically come out of dissent and of discussion and some conflict because the obvious deals would be pretty obvious. So we try to foster that. End quote. So since a unanimous decision was not needed on this investment and John Doerr, Kleiner's basically unofficial leader, had immense conviction on this deal, Kleiner ultimately invested $12 million for 12% of Google. And as you could guess, Google would turn out to be one of the best, if not the best, winners in Kleiner Perkins' long history. In 2004, when Google IPO'd, their stake was worth about $2,875,000,000. Google did not raise any more money after the Series A with Kleiner. And as we touched on in the Sequoia episode with Sequoia participating in that round as well, since search is one of the greatest business models ever, Google could just spit out cash flow 
meaning they didn't need to raise more money from investors so Kleiner could maintain their 12% ownership on just their $12 million of invested capital. So $12 million turning into $2.875 billion just five years later. Another ridiculous investment that had Kleiner return 240x on that initial $12 million and a 199% IRR. Certainly a spectacular investment, just defined by an incredible founder VC fit in understanding the potential of this product, both technically and financially. And so I love these types of investments where the founder and VC are perfectly aligned. And I'm sure these types of investments are the ones that all VCs really strive to make. And so lastly, you know, as we always do, after telling great stories about why Kleiner Perkins invested in Genentech and Amazon and Google and all these multiple hundred X of returns and how great John Doerr is and how great Kleiner Perkins is, we will still conclude with some big mistakes Kleiner made over the years. And after covering Sequoia and Benchmark and now Kleiner, I can confidently say Kleiner's misses are worse than Sequoia and Benchmark's misses. And not necessarily worse on a potential dollar outcome basis because, you know, Benchmark missed Google. So that trumps all right there. But they really missed some big wins, you know, as we'll see. And so what's so frustrating about these mistakes is that they shouldn't have been mistakes. You know, they weren't really about price, like when Benchmark missed on Google, or some uncontrollable factor, like when Sequoia missed on Facebook for Facebook's relation with Sean Parker and that whole history about that. In fact, all three of these investments either fit right into a thesis that Kleiner Perkins had were very similar to companies they backed in the past. Or the last one we'll talk about was another big and bold idea, you know, backed by a great mission that fit the typical Kleiner investment, like we talked about with Google. So this is a pretty frustrating section, more frustrating than the last two weeks. I don't know why I get so annoyed. It's just whatever, (laughs) but Um, So first we're going to talk about is Tesla. And so this investment is a head scratcher for many reasons. First, it's Elon Musk. (laughs) And, you know, obviously now Elon Musk of 2023 is a lot different than Elon Musk of 2006. I mean, he wasn't this, you know, once in a generation entrepreneur yet. SpaceX wasn't you know, a multi-hundred billion dollar company. Tesla wasn't a near trillion dollar company. But he had led successful companies in Zip2, which he founded and led, and PayPal, which he was CEO of for a short time after merging uh, with Max Levchin and Peter Thiel with his company, X.com, ironically. Um, But he still had a reputation as an ambitious genius capable of solving difficult problems. Now, these are the entrepreneurs Dor historically backed. 
the Googlers and Bezos were unproven founders, unlike Musk, who was already proven, but they were geniuses capable of solving difficult problems, which is what Dor loves. Dor loved geniuses capable of solving difficult problems, just like Musk, except Musk also had that experience of being a founder and running large companies. And so I'm very surprised that Dor didn't feel the same conviction he felt when backing Bezos, Larry Page, and Sergey Brin. Maybe he was growing old of the ambitious ideas as Kleiner was beginning to enter his slump in 2006. It was not really getting as many wins as they used to. Maybe Musk was just different then than he is now. But again, somehow he misread Elon Musk, um, which is already quite the mistake. What's more interesting about this is that Tesla was perfectly aligned with Kleiner's thesis at the time. Kleiner Perkins was transitioning from the focus of their partnership to almost strictly green tech investments, which was very outside the norm for venture capital. John Doerr just became obsessed with solving climate change and put all of Kleiner Perkins' focus into that. In about 2006 to 2010-ish was when they were really focused on this. And what's crazy is Tesla's mission was literally to make electric cars the most affordable cars in America, much like is going on right now, which would severely decrease the number of internal combustion engine vehicles on the road. That was his mission then. In 2006, this was already written out. There's a famous picture of it just written on a piece of paper of his three-step plan to build an expensive car, make money so that he can build an affordable car for all of America, or excuse me, all of the world to drive. Um, But instead of backing Musk and this big idea and his engineering expertise and operational experience, they went with the only other electric vehicle company they could invest in at the time, which was Fisker. You may have not heard of them because they've been bankrupt since I think like 2014. And Kleiner went with this Fisker because the management team had experience in the automobile industry, which you know can be one of the most difficult industries to operate in. You know, due to regulation, especially when you're disrupting the whole thing of these entrenched incumbents like, you know, Ford, GM, and on and on, trying to completely disrupt them with a new type of vehicle that they could not compete with. As we see now, they still can't really build practical electric cars at the price of Tesla, whatever, sidebar. But so Fisker had, the Fisker team had experience in the automobile industry which, you know, Musk obviously did not have. But again, he was certainly capable of building a well-designed car. I mean, he was an engineering genius. I think they said he took apart and put back together a motorcycle when he was four years old. I'm pretty sure I read once. I think that's right. Regardless, he was an engineering genius. Kleiner Perkins loved to back engineers. And just like we saw with the Amazon investment, 
Bezos wasn't from a retailing or web development background. I mean, he worked at a hedge fund before starting Amazon. But John mentioned how Jeff was just so bright and someone he wanted to get in trouble with, which they were certainly going to do because they were disrupting an entire industry by bringing all of retail online and undercutting all their prices and so on and so forth. Amazon has had its fair share of regulation issues and threats from other businesses. So Bezos not coming from a retailing background was probably a good thing because he wasn't initially handicapped by knowing what he could and couldn't do. And so maybe Musk and Dor just didn't vibe as much as Dor and Bezos did early on. I mean, like I said, Elon Musk today is much different than Elon Musk was in 2006. But again, this is certainly a big miss and one that's really hard to understand why it happened. I mean, I'm very surprised that they didn't invest, having seen the opportunity. I mean, Elon Musk was, like Jeff Bezos, willing to take less money for Kleiner Perkins to invest. I think he had an offer for $70 million valuation, but was willing to take a $50 million valuation with Kleiner Perkins if John Doerr joined the board. But unlike Amazon, John Doerr didn't want to join the board of Tesla, and Tesla went with the other investor. So the only plausible explanation I can think of as to why Kleiner Perkins didn't invest in Tesla is just because it would have been unfair for Kleiner Perkins to have invested in Google, Amazon, and Tesla. Two is enough. That has to be the reason. (laughs) Anyway, next we're going to go into VMware. And this investment is also interesting By the way, if you don't know VMware, they just sold to Broadcom for something around $61 billion, I'm pretty sure. So big company, very successful company, kind of a low-key company if you don't know a lot about cloud computing and data storage and so on and so forth, but big company. And so this investment is also interesting because Kleiner had invested in Juniper Networks and Sun Microsystems, which were different companies, but were similar in the sense that you know all three of these companies, VMware, Juniper, Sun, worked with data visualization and data storage and cloud computing. They were all in that world. And so VMware should have been right in Kleiner's wheelhouse, having come out of successful investments, very successful investments in Juniper Networks and Sun Microsystems in the 90s, in the 80s. The only reason I could find why they passed was due to, you know, like all great companies, a high valuation. Like I covered in previous episodes, a high valuation is the classic reason why investors don't invest in future successful companies. We talked about Sequoia passing on Salesforce because of high valuation and benchmark passing on Google because of high valuation. I mean, if anyone knows of any studies that go into if companies that were passed on because of high valuations 
you know, just what that success rate is, because I'm starting to see a trend that companies that had a high valuation that were passed on by premier venture capitalists tend to turn out successful. So if there's any numbers behind that, maybe I'll jump into that because that seems like there's some type of arbitrage there. <laughs> but anyway, so I don't need to go further into the specifics about why I just don't like the excuse of passing because of high valuations. I've seen that too many times that I don't like that one. But what's even more frustrating about this pass is that Kleiner Perkins' partner at the time, Vinod Kosla, who we talked about earlier, had successfully co-founded and ran Sun Microsystems to the multi-billion dollar juggernaut it became. So he knew this industry well. As we said, Sun Microsystems was pretty similar to VMware. And he reportedly had very high conviction on this investment and was very adamant that they invest despite the high valuation. I don't know, you know what happened internally. Perhaps no other partners agreed with Kosla and he was outvoted. But as we touched on with Google, with John Doerr's inkling of Google, the best investments are non-consensus and right. Also, Vinod Kosla likely knew more about the industry than any other partners at Kleiner, having worked at Sun Microsystems, you know, direct competitor of VMware. So if he's lobbying for this investment so strongly, then, you know, as the subject matter expert at the firm in this domain, he should have been given the green light to invest. So this is why I favor smaller partnerships that don't require, you know, a vote, you know, like we touched on with Benchmark. Any partner, if they have conviction, they can lead it, you know, rather than bloated firms like Kleiner Perkins, who's 12 partners with too much discussion and pandering around potential flaws of an investment. I believe, I personally believe that non-obvious investments are the best investments in venture capital. And I think a lot of people would agree with me for that. Therefore, the partner with the most domain expertise should be given the trump card over those with less domain expertise. Now, this is how you get non-obvious and right. So in my opinion, you know, it's easy for me to look back on this and I'm not a venture capitalist, so this could be naive of me to say, but in my opinion, if you're at a partnership and there's you know five or six partners and one of them is extremely gung-ho about making this investment and he or she is the domain expert in this field, they should have the trump card over the rest of the five partners to make that deal. That's not obvious and potentially could be right. And if that investor knows more than the others, he or she knows something that they don't, which is why they're why he or she's getting more conviction. So as you may be able to tell, this one frustrates me a little more than Tesla. I mean, the Tesla one's very frustrating, but this one's also very frustrating. And frankly, could be a reason why Vinod Kosla, who was a top VC you know, in the 90s at Kleiner Perkins, could be why he left to start his own venture firm, Kosla Ventures, which would begin to certainly overtake Kleiner Perkins throughout the 2000s of just success and returns on invested capital uh, after leaving Kleiner Perkins just a few years later, a few years after this decision. So the last one we're going to cover today is Robinhood. So once again, like every company I try to expose in the anti-portfolio section, since no VCs want to talk about this, 
I couldn't find too much information on why they passed. What I do know is that they were pitched at both the Series A and the Series B, but passed both times. They did ultimately invest in a late-stage growth round, which valued the company at $5.3 billion, but I'm still considering this an anti-portfolio investment since they missed at the more notable stages, the A and B stage, where they could have earned a lot more money on this investment than just two or three Xing it, whatever they did. They could have multiples of 100 Xed it. <laughs> but so, yes, anti-portfolio company. Now, like I said, I couldn't find information, but I'm assuming they passed because Kleiner Perkins was kind of in shambles at this time, unfortunately. It was 2014 when they first met with Robin Hood, and they were coming off this hangover of just an unsuccessful, I mean, successful in the sense that they did return capital and returned a decent number on the fund, but unsuccessful in the sense that Kleiner Perkins was the premier venture capital firm before you know 2006 when they started going all in on green tech startups and while that's a good virtuous cause to back they were way too early on it and just did not have a lot of successful exits so they didn't return you know that top one percent capital that they were expected to return as a premier venture capital firm and they were just coming off a gender discrimination lawsuit that one of the partners within Kleiner Perkins filed against the firm. And you know, while Kleiner Perkins won this lawsuit, they, they deemed the partner who sued them's lawsuit, they threw it out. It still hurt the firm's reputation. I mean, they had this green tech hangover. They still had this lawsuit that they won, but it still just looks bad. So Kleiner Perkins wasn't in a good state. So... Perhaps they just weren't as focused or had enough conviction to invest in you know these bold big ideas like Robin Hood's of you know democratizing investing. Now I think that they were probably just way too focused on just investing in green technologies and you know, virtuous investments that they just missed a lot of these consumer tech or internet-based technology companies throughout the 2010s that were so big. I mean, this is when, you know, Uber and Airbnb and all those companies came out, Instagram in that 2009, 2010, 2011 area. And they kind of shifted from, you know, early stage to just late stage growth rounds for technology companies like Robinhood with one of their former partners, Mary Meeker, leading that charge who did great growth investing. But again, Connor Perkins should be better than that. They should be able to identify and invest in these companies at the earliest stages when they see them. So I'm all for, you know, developing theses. It's a good way of attracting founders to your company because they know what you're looking for and, you know, what your expertise is in. But I'm not a fan of investment theses when it becomes the only thing you do. When you only meet with companies that follow that thesis, or else you will omit far too many exceptional companies. I believe personally in having several theses for you know, several different industries or broader or, or broader thesis that can be applied to multiple industries. 
So Kleiner Perkins seems to have changed that today to being a little more broader with their beacon. Um, and I suppose Kleiner Perkins probably learned that lesson the hard way from missing Robin Hood and this incredible wave of consumer technology companies. So that's all for the anti-portfolio. I feel like this episode kind of ended on a pretty brutal note. So I am sorry to all Kleiner Perkins fans out there, if you're listening. I do think John Doerr is the greatest venture capitalist of all time. And no venture capital firm had a better run from 1974 to 2004 than Kleiner Perkins. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean they didn't make crucial mistakes that sent Kleiner lower down the totem pole of great VC firms. I mean, like I said, from 74 to 2004, they were number one undisputedly. Now, I don't know where they are, but they're not number one, maybe not even you know within the top five. Their reputation's pretty harsh. It's definitely Sequoia and Benchmark up there and then I don't know where it goes after that, but Kleiner Perkins, not at the top. So while they're not at the top, it seems that they did learn from these mistakes and are going back to just being all in and breakthrough technologies. They still invest in, you know, difficult like health tech companies and, you know, challenging engineering companies, but they're also all in on, you know, AI and consumer technology and those typical investments that VC firms make. And it seems to be that the new partners are starting to generate some early success and get some momentum and build that Kleiner Perkins brand name back, even without you know John Doerr being there anymore. Regardless of all that, I think this essay has many lessons regarding backing bold ideas by ambitious founders, supporting entrepreneurs at the lowest level at the idea stage, and supporting their growth and not being so thesis-driven or, or short-sighted and not being so focused on you know group decisions when it comes to investments, like backing your partners if they have that much conviction and if they're qualified to have that much conviction. So that's all for today. If you like this episode, please share it with a few friends you think would also be interested. I'm sure they'd be grateful that you sent it to them. If you prefer to read a slightly abridged version of this type of content, you can go to my Substack at All Things VC. There'll be a link in the show notes. If you want to hear some quick clips of reminders of what we listened to today, you can check out the YouTube page. I post you know clips of why Kleiner Perkins invested in Google or Amazon. Now, so post you know shorts of just minute long clips of key lessons we learned here today. And if you want to learn about the companies that Kleiner invested in that we didn't cover and a few more tips from the partners, you can check out allthingsvc.blog. Link to that will be in the show notes as well. And lastly, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin underscore prior underscore for just random tweets regarding the companies I cover and the lessons I learned from them. So thank you all again for listening. Be back again next week with a slightly different, but pretty interesting episode. So I'm excited to share that with you. So thanks again. Take care.